What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stale. A huge thank you, as always, to our academics in the Bestseller Academy and our patrons on Patreon who keep the wheels rolling on this podcast. And if you want to find out more about the Academy, go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. If you want to find out more about Patreon, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Uh, Mr. D, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mr. State. And I'm very excited that we have a we have a very special guest on today who's a, uh, I think we can call her possibly a future best-selling smash novelist who's actually a patron so if you want to be like our special guest today um you know and you want to have all the success that we're going to talk about with her incredible launch to her career stay tuned this one's a really really exciting one so yeah mr state i'm doing well i'm doing well how's life with you right now yeah, very good. I I did um I did a literary festival, which was really good fun. I I, uh, I did the the Faversham Literary Festival. I have to say, you have to say Faversham in a posh voice because it's become one of those in jokes in the house. Because uh when when we came back from whenever you come back from London on the train, for some reason the recorded voice on the train does it in a posh voice. So it goes Gillingham, Raynham, Sittingbourne, Faversham. So and <laughs> it's become one of these things where in our house it just becomes posher and posher every time we say it says Faversham, Faversham. But I had a great great event uh, at the Faversham Literary Festival with uh, F M A Dixon, or uh, better known as Malcolm Dixon locally, uh, who's a local author here in Kent and uh, it's got a delightful book called The Little House on Everywhere Street and we were talking about writing and uh, you know his journey to publication and I'm going to get him on the podcast actually because it's an absolutely brilliant story all started on a uh, when he was stuck uh, in the Garden or in Paris uh, on a platform in Paris it's a really good story and uh, it was lovely at the Faversham Literary Festival met a couple of listeners hey. uh, one of whom one of whom had to bring up the Ben Aronovich episode during the Q&A uh, which uh, <laughs> was great uh, but they did buy a copy of Back to Reality as well so I owe you a oh. fiver Mr D so we've got to split that 50-50 so uh, I'll send you a I'll send you a postal order in the post <laughs> couple of hobnobs couple of hobnobs I will be celebrating later well thank you so much to uh, to everyone that um, that came to the festival, and this is actually an in person festival. This wasn't some yeah. Zoom virtual event. We were getting back into the real mm. world. That must feel fantastic. It was great, actually. Yeah, yeah. See the whites of their eyes. It was fantastic. So absolutely, um, good, 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 good fun. Brilliant stuff. And there's also we're having a little chat pre pre pressing the big red button. There, there's been some very interesting <laughs> things happen in your life, haven't you? something that uh, uh you can't really talk about but oh, i know it's films and stuff isn't it but yeah but we've had the um 
we had the first chunk of financing for a film come in. Uh, so this is um, a film that uh, I, I've co-written and um, we've got about a third of the budget coming. So this is how films come together. You get one production company that says, lovely, we like that. We're going to put some money towards that. And then when you got the first chunk of money and you start to, you know, uh, hopefully accrue other bits of money. So um, as you go along, so I think we've got like the first third of the budget, which is very exciting and it's a nice bit of approval. And um, yeah, so the script has gone out with a pitch to other financier people saying, look, look, we've got some money. You could be mm. part of this too. You know, get on board before the, the train leaves kind of thing. So um, yeah, it's a very exciting stage. It's also a stage where it could still fall apart, still could all, well, you know, crumble to pieces. But, but um, fantastic yeah. news to, to yeah, I mean, yeah. like you say, a little bit of a green light there and actually ties in really nicely with the interview that we're doing today of multiple offers um yes. <laughs> you know and how that works as well so stay tuned for that if you've been or if you've ever been interested in um you know i'm quite blown away actually by what's happened um with lizzie pook our our, our guest today because it's very unusual and we'll talk about this more yeah. in the post but it's very unusual well you think of getting a one deal and i think a lot of people think about it with film as well oh you know someone likes a film you know they put the option on it, they pay the money, but it's not how it works in all situations. And I'm guessing it's probably quite usual in film, is it, to have to get things in chunks or is it more usual to get like all the money yeah. coming oh, no, from one person? It's 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 totally the norm. I mean, That's this is norm. why at, when, when you sit down and watch a film, you have like four or five ident cards. So it'll be, you know, Canal or uh, it'll right. be, you know, BBC or Film yeah. 4. And then you get, fo- and it gets to the point where you're like, oh my God. God, there's so many of these. When is the film going to start? <laughs> Funny enough, Ro- Robot Overlords, we had something like 14 producers. And uh, one Goodness. of the tests, um, wasn't even a test, it was before the test screenings. All the idents were coming up. And one of the producers said, for sake, put them at the end, which is why if you stay to the very end credits of Robot Overlords, there's about 14 ident cards at, oh, the, at wow. the end. So, yeah. <laughs> they should have just like one big, like one big screen of all the logos on it <laughs> just do it in one go like a zoom call yeah yeah literally yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh that's brilliant well, you know and the, the bigger the logo basis is representing the percentage of how much they funded the more the money film, they right? put in yeah yeah like the local splash park we <laughs> just a had really funded good idea. <laughs> yeah you've got the big sponsors at the top and the little logos at the bottom that's brilliant mate. very exciting well i'm very i'm really looking forward to seeing how that i mean we haven't even got out the gates yet with um with unwelcome and here we are Talking about yes. possibly the next one, but this is what it's about, though, isn't it? It's a, it, you don't you don't rest on your laurels. You get something in the bag oh, and something made, and then and that's the time to strike for the next opportunity. And same with with books as well, isn't it? If you've got one success, you you have to keep that momentum going to kind of build on that. Yeah, I mean, film especially is is like spread betting. You know, you you can have four or five projects and if one of them hits then you're off to the races but the odds are none of them will you know but you, mm. the more the more content you you generate the more likely you are to get something up and running so it's a, just to mention unwelcome now this hasn't been publicly announced this isn't an official announcement but we um if you go on IMDb it now says coming in October so uh that's probably when we're coming up. I know we were looking at March, but with the Omicron situation, particularly worldwide, internationally, still very iffy to bring it, unless you're unless you're like Batman, uh, which is, you know, people people will risk Omicron to go and see someone in spandex or a cape. Uh, but for anything else, they won't. It seems, you know, Spider-Man, brilliant. Batman, great. But uh, anything else is a, is a big risk. So uh, yeah. we're coming for Halloween. 
Uh, wow. So uh, yeah, but that'll be that'll be two years after we wrapped, oh uh, which is becoming kind of the new the norm for anything that was shot just before during yeah uh, the, the you know the lockdowns or whatever. So um, but yeah, Halloween feels good. So good good old that's horror, a great that fun could be experience. A so. Great time, and actually, it's uh, at times like this, it's always worth focusing on the fact that it's still it's still coming out, whereas a lot of films that weren't and a lot of books as well that maybe were slated because of covid it's like in some ways it's you're kind of the lucky few that are coming out the other yeah. end and then who knows yeah. what's going to happen i i kind of i'm seeing thinking of like this explosion of of things that we're going to see in the next couple of years because of the amount of time people have had yeah. to hunker down um and, and work on you know creative pursuits as well so it's gonna be a very very interesting couple of years and you also you also mentioned as well mark that you've the Ghost of Ivy Barn, which is the third book yes. in your series, uh, which is a Woodville series, you got the edits back for it this week. Yeah, they came yesterday, and um, it's in very good shape. It is that thing of oh, here we go again. You yeah, know, it's like it's, you've got the edit triage, but and you know you've got all these comments and everything. And my my editor um, Bethan is is terrific because she she does you know lots of encouraging notes. I love this bit. I love this bit. But she's great at pointing out all my little plot holes. So I've got to go in and fix those. Um, but you know you have to see these things. It's an opportunity to to polish it and make it better. And it was great. I had a great breakthrough this morning because there was one character that was causing problems, and I think I've cracked it. I was making lots of notes this morning. I think I've cracked it. So I, you know, I'm feeling confident going in. This is going to be, you know, uh, lots of fun. So yeah. Uh, yeah, but I've got to crack on with that. That's very exciting news. But you know what? As we always say, Mark, it could be worse. You could have four editors or six <laughs> <Yes>. editors. <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a minute. So let's dive in and uh, let's let's learn more about our amazing guest today, debut author Lizzie Pook. Lizzie Pook, who, who got in touch via email, and we'll, we'll cover that a bit later. Lizzie, as you say, is a patron and a listener, long-term listener of the podcast. Uh, she's an award-winning writer and travel journalist. She was, she's reported for Condé Nast Traveller, Rough Guys, Lonely Planet, The Sunday Times. Her assignments have taken her to Greenland and the Himalayas and all sorts of extraordinary places. And she was inspired to write her debut novel, Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter, after spending some time in northwestern Australia researching the Pearl diving industry and the book it was published in february 2022 by penguin random house in australia and new zealand it's coming in march 2022 uh via mantle which is part of pam mcmillan and then it's coming in june 2022 in the in the us and canada from simon and schuster so we go into that so we discuss among other things using cultural consultants for research launching with three different publishers on three continents and working with four different editors. Brilliant stuff. Well, let's dive in and have a listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Lizzie Pook. Lizzie Pook, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? Hello, Mark. Hi, I'm very, very excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. We're very excited to have you because you're, you're a listener of the podcast, aren't you? I am. I'm a long-term listener for the, hey. of the podcast. I've been listening for years, so this is actually quite surreal because I'm used to hearing your voice and uh, <laughs> your podcast, and now here I am chatting with you. So uh, it's quite odd, but very, very lovely. Well, I mean, the, the great thing is we have so much to talk about, not least your new novel, debut novel, Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter, which uh, so much to touch touch upon, um, particularly how it's published, been published worldwide by three, you know, it, three very different publishers. Uh, but tell us about this book and 
what inspired because I'm looking at your Instagram and there's a picture of you standing in Western Australia in this it looks like you're kind of on the surface of Mars you know this incredible red sand tell us tell us how this book came about yeah, so so actually it came about when I ended up in a place called Broome, which is an old pearling town in the sort of far reaches of the northwest Kimberley in Western Australia. And Broome is one of the most beautiful places you could ever imagine. You know, mm. it's almost ridiculously beautiful. It's got sort of <laughs> bright red pendant soil and chalky turquoise seas and mangroves. And, you know, it's, it's preposterous. <laughs> but what is... What is what I found truly fascinating about it was its history with the pearling and the pearl diving trade. So in the mid-19th century, people from all over the world, people from um, Europe, America, Asia, the Caribbean, descended on this tiny little red dust town in Western Australia to hunt for pearl shell. You know, it was like uh, like you would have with the gold rush town. Yeah. And yeah. I just found that fascinating that there was this tiny place in the middle of this huge, huge country that would have been so incredibly diverse and sort of a frenzy of activity at that time. Um, but I was also fascinated by just how perilous the pearl diving industry actually was. I think sometimes, you know, if you look at string of pearls or, you know, perhaps see a picture of a, a pearling lugger, the ships, the sort of, you know, sailing ships that they used to use to sail out and find the find the pearl shell, that it seems like quite a romantic thing. And it really was not a romantic thing. You know, this is an industry where men in sort of very heavy copper helmets descended to the seabed and in search of pearl shell. And while down there, they came up against all sorts of things. So sharks, crocodiles, sea snakes, even whales. And, you know, they could get their air pipes entangled in the flukes of whales and they could be dragged through the water until they drowned. Um, or they came up against things like diver's paralysis, which we now know of the bends, now of as the bends. And so, you know, I was just fascinated in this really dangerous industry what I thought was a really interesting um, time and place. And I wanted to place a British settler family because there were lots of British settlers at that time, obviously, um, in this environment, a very strong-willed woman at its centre and see what would happen. Fantastic. Now, this, and I've, I've seen you talk about this elsewhere, that pearl industry was very dangerous, but also there's a very dark side to it as well in that, you know, it, it was built on the forced labour of Indigenous Australians. Was this something you were aware of beforehand or was it one of these things that you discovered during research? Because I've had this where you get an idea and you start looking into it and then you go, oh, am I the right person to tell this story? Is this my story to tell? Is, did that dis Where did that discovery come and did it change the tone of the story at all? Sure. Yeah. So no, I wasn't aware. You know, I, I was aware that this was a dangerous industry. But most of the things that we hear about um, pearl diving or sea are those pictures of those um, copper helmets and those sort of canvas suits and that sort of, you know, almost spaceship type uh, uniform, those men walking <laughs> on the sea there. But actually, in its very early stages, um, pearling was, as you said, built on forced um, Aboriginal labour and obviously then went on to be indentured labour. Um, so when the pearlers first started, they would blackbird, which is a term for kidnapping, basically, um, Aboriginal men, women, and children, and um, force them to dive for pearl shell. So actually, you know, in this in its early um, in its early stages, it was a form of slavery, mm -hmm. um, and the pearlers actually, you know, one of the 
the worst things that I discovered was that you know they would they would seek out pregnant women, pregnant pregnant Aboriginal women, and force them to die for shell because they believed that they had an increased lung capacity. There was so much that I discovered about this industry that really I just the shock that shocked me, and yeah. there was lots about it that I didn't include in the book because you know it it, it, it I didn't want it to be exploitative, and mm-hmm. I and as you as you touched upon. That's not my story to tell. What I did want to do was write a um, historical novel that was reflective of the sheer diversity of people that would have been in this type of place at this time in history. Um, So Broome, and my setting is Bannon Bay, which is a fictionalised town, which is based upon places like Broome and other early pearling hubs, Shark Bay and Cossack, for example. Um, you know, and it was a real anomaly on Australian soil. There really were people from all around the world rubbing up against one another in this sort of town. So that fascinated me, and I did want to write that sort of story. But I didn't feel it was um, down to me to write from the perspective of um, someone outside my own experience. So my main character is Eliza Brightwell, who is a white woman but there are other characters in this book who are from um other ethnicities other backgrounds and that's because that is reflective of that time and place and I feel that it's important to tell those stories but what I did do and what I was what was really uh, I, I was really lucky um is that a um indigenous tour guide that I had interviewed um quite a lot um for the research for this book actually agreed to come on board um as a cultural consultant his name is Bart Pigram and he um has a family history of um being in the pearling industry and I was really lucky in that my Australian publishers as well Penguin um were really keen to sort of work quite closely with him as well as a cultural consultant. Um, and he was, as well as being able to advise on any sort of cultural sensitivities when it come, when it came to referencing the things that happened or, um, you know, mentioning some of the ensemble cast that, that were not from my own personal background, he was able to advise on cultural sen- sensitivities, but also point me towards really amazing um, reference books or mm. academic papers or just, you know, he really provided... Um, so much more to the story and then we also um, were really lucky in that the um, Aboriginal Law and Cultural Council in in the Kimberley agreed to um, consult on the manuscript as well and so that was really 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 lovely and so it was a collaborative effort and um, you know while I wasn't telling any stories from the perspective of um, anyone else that wasn't sort of of my own background I did want to include those characters and um, some of that detail as well. And so so I felt it was important to do that consultation. Very good. And now the book has been published, as we're recording this, it's just been published a week or so ago in Australia. What's the early reaction been like? Yeah, it's it's just come out last week. And so it's, it's really exciting, but also so exposing. You know, you're, you've been working on something for so long and it's been a very sort of personal project and that's sort of out in the world for everyone to see um and the reaction has been really lovely really really nice um I've had um quite a lot of comments about the main my main character Eliza which is really nice because I've read a lot of 19th century adventure fiction while I was writing this book and 
let me tell you, that's some macho stuff. You know, there are men <laughs> everywhere in those books. You know, moustaches, the moustaches, Lizzie. Yeah, I so moustaches. You know, and all the women, you know, you're either a wench or a bar, you know, a barmaid or a wife. And so I really wanted to, to put a woman at the centre of one of the, what, what is traditionally a male story and see what would happen with her. And so that's been really nice. The reaction to Eliza's been really lovely. But just the publicity in Australia has been... Mad that you had to go on breakfast TV, which yeah. was, you know, absolutely <laughs> terrifying. And been doing lots of radio over there as well, because obviously Australia is so vast. I urge you to go to um, Lizzie's social media because she has a banner there uh, that shows you the different covers because it's published uh, in February 2022 by Penguin Random House in Australia and New Zealand. In March, it's uh, Mantle and Pam McMillan in the UK. And in June 2022, it's Simon Schuster in the US and Canada. And you've got a banner up of three completely different covers, um, which, I mean, I guess the, the Australian and the US one have a similar figure of uh, you know of your hero heroine looking out to sea, uh, but one is one is kind of has those you know Australian colours and one is dark blue at night, and the UK one is very ornate and has sort of the diving helmets on there as well, which is it's just wonderful. What were the different you know you've got three different publishers? What were their different approaches to publication uh, of of the same book? Yeah, it's been that's been really interesting, and the covers thing has been one of the most sort of enjoyable parts of this because you get to see how different territories are interpreting your book. So, as you said, you know, Australia and the US and Canada have both done this sort of uh, you know emotive woman looking out to sea sort of thing. Um, but I've also started to see some of the translation covers coming in, so covers from Finland and France and stuff like that. And they've again interpreted in it in a different way. And you've got you know lots of birds or insects or stuff like you've got in the book. So um, it, it was very interesting having four different editors because it meant that I had four different editors feeding back in terms of my original wow. editorial notes. So you know the, the the book well the manuscript got sold um to these different territories and then obviously you get all those editors coming back and giving you feedback and saying what they think you need to do to make the book better right. <laughs> which is which is really nice but when it's coming from four different editors when perhaps normally you might have one or two it, it can be quite overwhelming but thankfully their general vision for the sort of edit you know the the nuts and bolts of the book you know the bones of the book were the same they all had the same general feedback it there was just a lot of it because they were all saying the same thing again and again so it was a case of you know trying to digest that and turn it into a um a turn it into a book a better book but yes I think the covers thing is just sort of what works for a different market they know what sort of you know what's going to appeal to readers of historical fiction in Canada or uh, America or you know what sort of books sell in Australia or you know perhaps it's being positioned more in a more literary sense here in the UK and a more commercial sense there in Australia so it's been you know it's one of those weird things that we'll never really understand about the publishing process but it's definitely <laughs> been um interesting to, to to see. I'd like to just circle back to getting all that different feedback so were they all sold at roughly the same time or did you sell to, was there like a primary publisher say the UK publisher or was there a lot of overlap 
So they all, so it sold at roughly the same time, I would say within about two weeks, those four main territories. So Australia was first, which was really lovely and very fitting. Um, Then the UK shortly afterwards, and then um, the US and Canada came in together. Um, And so they then, thankfully, instead of feeding back separately, they all went off and did various Zoom calls with one another ah. to discuss their their general their general to make sure they were on the same page in terms of the general direction that they wanted the book to go in, and then they all put their feedback together and sent it across to me in one very lengthy editorial <laughs> note, which must have been about I don't know fifteen pages long or something like that. So, right. um, but it felt you know it felt like a real privilege it felt like I was getting a cheat code for a computer game basically it was like <laughs> hang on you're going to tell me how to make this book better and you know and so so while I might have been tempted to hurl my laptop out the window and say no I'm not making any changes to the book I think I had to you know remind myself that this is you know I'm in a really fortunate position that these people who are experts in you know books and books in their territories um you know are telling me how to make it better uh, it's, it's great they all got together to have a Zoom call, to, so they're all kind of agreeing to sing from the same hymn sheet. Because I, I, what did you know when the call was going? And were you sitting there thinking there are people in you know three different parts of the world talking about me and my book at the moment? Was was there a moment of you know, can I just listen in? Can I put a glass up against the wall? That kind of thing. What was that? What was that like? Waiting for that feedback. Really nerve-wracking and really surreal. But I think, you know, when when all of this happened and when I was told that the book was going to be published and and those sort of offers started coming through, it's such a cliche, but it really was like one of those moments in a sort of Spanish soap opera where the screen goes all wobbly and it's like a cello, <laughs> like a dream or something like that. I genuinely thought. When the first offer came through, it was via email and it was from Australia. And um, I was in the car, my husband was driving and I got the email and I sort of grabbed the seat because I thought, we've crashed the car and I'm in this sort of, you know, weird unconscious state and this is all playing out in my mind and it's not really happening. You know, and I can look back now and realise it's the brain and the body's way of sort of dealing with shock and and processing things that that it doesn't really know how to process. But um, so when these these things were happening, you know, when they were having that Zoom call and stuff like that, I don't think I was sort of fully inhabiting what was going on at the time. Right. I think that was just sort of just getting through the day and, uh, you know, the nerves and stuff that come with it. But it was certainly very exciting. It's um, it's a bit of an out-of-body experience, isn't it? Because you, it's the thing you've always dreamed of and it's finally happening but it's, it can, it, in some ways it feels kind of ordinary and they're just people talking over Zoom or an email or whatever and there are these life-changing words and it doesn't quite sink in, does it? It's, it's, like, an, it's like it's happening to someone else, I think. Exactly. That is exactly how I would describe it. Even yeah. when, you know, I, perhaps I've been doing an event or a radio interview or something like that and they're doing an introduction they're talking about the book and what's happened with the book and some of the deals and stuff like that and I'm thinking that's so great and that's so exciting for that author how brilliant and then I have to think oh no that, that is that is actually me and I think I think we'd be in danger if we started to sort of take those things for granted um and sort of think oh yeah that's how I should be introduced or yeah of course that's how you should be talking about my book um, and I think being sort of blown away by it 
is a really nice thing. And I think uh, hopefully I'll continue to feel to feel that way. Yeah, it never gets old. Now you've described let's let's talk about it because that's your that's the kind of life-changing moment that we all look forward to. But you've described the road to publication as a long old slog. And Lizzie, you know, you've listened to the podcast. You know we love a long old slog. <laughs> uh, to to publication on this podcast. So can, tell us how it all because you you're you you know you're a journalist you and you're a travel writer you've travelled all over the world. But uh, was novel writing always on the cards for you? So I never grew up, you know, with the idea that writing a book was something that you could actually do as a job. You know, I thought that books were written by um, you know middle aged men. Well, with grey hair, perhaps smoking a cigar, you know, that went to Eton or something, you know, it was just never really sort of seen it as never really saw it as a career path. So I did, I went into journalism. Um, and that was great. And it was brilliant, very fast-paced and very stressful, but I, you know, got to do some amazing things and some incredible stories. And um, eventually I went into travel writing, and that really was sort of felt like a dream come true and was able to travel the world and write about it but I always had this sort of niggling idea that I would I would like to write a book and you know when I ended up in Western Australia and started started getting these first little sparks of inspiration that never left my head you know that idea for this this book never left but you know that was years and years ago um and so I continued on, you know, working very hard and traveling and never stopping and never slowing down. And then um, actually I, I got ill. I, I, I became uh, ill and went through a, a period of ill health and was diagnosed with chronic illness, um, an autoimmune disorder that um, can be quite debilitating. And I was basically told to slow down and basically told to, you know, just calm it down a bit and um, give yourself some time to rest. And so I took a step back from that very high octane life on the road. And it was really hard. It was a massive shift in identity. I felt like I'd lost the thing that sort of was ever remotely interesting about me and lost purpose and things like that. But what I did have was this sense of stillness and this sense of sort of time stretching out in front of me. And so I started applying myself in terms of writing this book. And eventually I took on a, a part-time role in an office um, which is not something that I had done for years because I was sort of just traveling all around the world. And but I told myself that if I did that, I would come home every night and I would write a thousand words a day. And that and and that was a non-negotiable. So I would come back from the office, you know, have something to eat, and then perhaps sat, sit down at my desk at 9 p.m. Put on a Hans Zimmer soundtrack to keep it together. <laughs> um, and hands. then I would write a thousand, write a thousand words a day. And, you know, I wasn't doing that for anyone. Nobody was expecting this book. But because I was forced to step back from something that I loved so much, this was, you know, sort of the silver lining. I told myself that I was really going to, really going to do this. Mm. And then the pandemic hit um, and I ended up, um, you know, any sort of travel writing gigs that I had at that point just disappeared overnight. Yeah. So that career disappeared overnight. I was unwell, um, I'd lost my career. And at that point, my husband and I were living at my mum's house in her attic bedroom. And so, you know, really, <laughs> you know, I can laugh about it now. Um, but this book was, this book and writing and the writing community and things like your podcast 
were really what kept me going at that time and kept me focused. And um, I feel quite emotional talking about it now, but it felt it felt like that was, you know, a sense of purpose. And so eventually um, I got to the end of the first draft, which was appalling. Um, and then I kept going and got, got to the end of the second, third, fourth, must have been up into the sort of 14th or 15th draft. Um, and then I hadn't shown it to anyone until I showed it to my twin sister and my mum. And um, they had some, you know, my mum certainly had some feedback on it. Um, and so I took that into account. And then I thought, you know, I've I've really got nothing else going on at the moment. So I thought, you know, I might as well submit this and see what happens. What happened next? Because, you know, it's... it's... It seemed at one some point that everyone was writing a novel during the lockdown. Uh, actually, I, to be fair, a lot of writers I know, certainly the wind came out of my sails at the beginning of lockdown, but then people did see it as a great opportunity to get stuff down. So what was what we have, What was your first point of call, apart from your mum and your sister? Where, was it straight to agents? Did you get other readers on board or editors on board? No, straight to agents. So I went into the slush. Um, right. I, I, uh, as a journalist, I had had a couple of agents reach out and say, have you ever thought about writing a book? Right. Because I think if you write, you know, if you, I was writing for women's magazines at that time and I was working for a weekly women's magazine. So my stuff was getting out there quite a lot. So they got in touch and said, have you ever thought about, uh, you know, doing something like that? And I said, oh, well, I am doing something and sort of kept in touch with them. But then ultimately I decided that I wanted to go into the slush pile and submit it sort of completely blind just because then I would know if it was good enough. Yeah. So I drew up a initial list of about nine agents, I think. Um, and I submitted and there was an agent that I put at the top as a joke to myself. I thought, <laughs> you know, you worked this hard, you know, you might as well just give it a try. You've got nothing to lose. And I remember almost, you know, chuckling to myself as I put my put her name on the top of that list. Um, and I heard back from her in about two days. Um, and <laughs> that really was one of the most insane moments of my life. She she sent me a lengthy email saying how much she loved what she read and that she 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 wanted the full. And then I actually had a few agents come back and and do the same thing. Um, which I just was unbelievable. And um, I signed with that dream agent who was at the top of my list, Madeline Milburn. Madeline Milburn <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, within about a week. Wow. Wow. It Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's incredible. I mean, con contrast that, you know, writing in your mum's attic bedroom, uh, and contrast that with those photos of you in Western Australia. And again, do check out um, Lizzie's Twitter and Instagram. So some extraordinary pictures uh, of, of where, it all, where it was all inspired by. So um, you're in the middle of this. So Australia's coming in February, UK's in March, US is June. You're in the middle of this kind of publication maelstrom. Um, are you still managing to write? What's What's happening next? Oh, hollow laugh. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm supposed to be writing my second book. And thankfully, 
there was quite a long period between um, when I signed with my agent and when we submitted to publishers, just in terms of timings, because there's sort of a best, you know, your agent might decide that it's, it's better to wait until after the summer or something like that. So I did start on book two then. And when I signed my contracts, I did get a, a two book deal for those territories that we've mentioned. Um, so I have actually, and obviously publishing is a long process. So that was all a while ago. Um, and so I do have a terrible first draft of book two. Um, I need to do the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, you know, however many drafts of that. But it's really, I found it really hard to inhabit two different worlds. So, you know, when you're talking about book one and, you know, doing interviews on the other side of the world, because obviously with Australia, the time difference is so sort of marked as well. So mm-hmm. I've been doing uh, radio interviews at 6am or midnight and I've just had <laughs> just had a request to do an interview at 3.40am GMT. Um, so, you know, uh, my body clock has no idea what's going on. And so I found it quite hard to, um, to write book two alongside, you know, being at the sharp end of, of book one coming out. But I'm hoping to be able to get back to it soon because I do have a, a, a you know, a thing called a deadline um, coming oh, up. We love those. We love those, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we um, love a deadline. Yes, I have, I have been working on book two, um, but it's sort of, don't tell my, don't tell my editor, sort of on, on pause at the moment. <laughs> Your secret is safe with us. Well, Lizzie, thank you so much for speaking to us. This has been an extraordinary story and it's so wonderful to have a listener on and a Patreon supporter on. Thank you so much for that as well. Uh, come on and tell us about, you know, what is an incredible publication event. Uh, folks, Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter, depending where you are in the world, is out now, coming soon, or, or coming in a couple of months. Uh, or if you listen to this in the future, it's already out. Go grab it now. Uh, so, Lizzie, thank you so much. Hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, thank you for having me. Do you know, when I when I first saw Lizzie's email, Mark, I th- I got this very funny feeling down the back of my spine. You know, sometimes you, you get these emails and, you, I mean, firstly, incredible. We'll talk a bit about the email a bit later on that she sent us, which was absolutely mind-blowing. But to read, this just sounds like the beginning of something epic. I mean, when you look at all of the publishers that have taken the rights to her book, I mean, we're talking about Pan Macmillan, Simon & Schuster, Penguin Random House, like... I would take one of those. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone's out there saying, I'll take, I'll take half of one of those. And and yet Lizzie's book has been picked up across, literally, it feels like across the board globally by, by competing major publishers. And I just love, love, love this story because it's, it seems like, I mean, firstly, the fact that you can do that is absolutely mind blowing, but it, there's just something about, the potential it gives a book, just the story of how it's getting published alone could make this a bestseller. Um, how often have you seen this type of deal happen in your many years in publishing? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think one of the reasons this has happened is because of the Australian location and how what a strong connection it has to Australia and Australian history. And I think that's where Penguin Random House, Australian, New Zealand, possibly jumped in first. And then once you get a bite from one territory, other territories get interested. So it's 
it's fairly common, but I think the way it happened with Lizzie, one after the other like that, and the fact that all the editors were working together, that's that's really interesting. That's really fascinating. Yeah. What will happen, you know, I, the other day, my agent sold the rights to my books to Turkey, for example. That's, you know, 18 months after the first, or a year and a bit after the first one was, was published, you know. So they're always fielding these things. And when they have things like the London Book Fair, the Frankfurt Book Fair, what have you, all these, you know, Bologna and whatever, all these incredible book fairs around the world, they sit and have meetings and they go through their uh, their slate of projects and say you know well, I think you might be interested in this so it's um but for them all to cluster together like that and mm. that unique experience of having four editors <laughs> working together right. and uh, and then uh, I think we had something similar I think Sarah Pimbra said something similar happened with behind her eyes in that the US and the UK editors were working in conjunction together, if you recall that, yeah. um, where they they sort of compiled notes and sent them to her. Uh, so it's... Um, it's it's not happened to me yet, but it's, uh, it's, 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 it's reasonably common, but for a cluster like that is three, you know, three continents we're talking about there. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also quite quite amazing as well to think about, you know, that you, you were kind of talking about that meeting where all the editors are getting on Zoom and chatting. For them to kind of see the things they agree on and the things yes. that maybe they had to debate, mate. And, and so, because obviously when you get one editor, as brilliant as that can be, it is one editor and it's one editor's viewpoint. And as we know, if you kind of sent your book out to, say, three different editors, if we were all allowed to do that with our books, we had the resources to do that, it'd be very fascinating to see what kind of feedback they got. But... For Lizzie to get all of that feedback, and especially the ones that were picked up, the things that were all common from all the editors, must have been incredibly helpful for her, um, for kind of like really sharpening that 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 book up. Yeah, I, 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 you have to wonder how if how much disagreement there might have been behind the scenes over this, mm. that, or the other. Uh, funnily enough, is it is a bit more like film in that. If you do have several producers, they will all have their opinions on what works and what doesn't. And, you know, can we change this? Can we update that? Can we remove, you know, change that line or whatever? Uh, and I think you, uh, you know, you have to take that on board. I mean, my my thing with a lot of these, particularly with film notes, is you smile, you nod, great note, thank you very much. And then you and the director have a conversation and then you, you, you know, you don't dismiss it. If it's a good note, it's a good note, it's a good note, you know. Mm. Um, and you you take it under due consideration. Um, whereas with, I mean, I can only imagine what her Lizzie's word doc looked like, you know, with all the different notes, because you know it's like in a word with track changes yeah. and oh, comments. Know. Yeah. You know, there'll all be different multicolors or whatever. I, yeah, yeah, it must be. But like she says, see, they 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 were at least working together. They were they're in harmony. So that's something. Absolutely brilliant. Now, cultural consultants this is something I've not really come across before, but what a gig yeah. that sounds like. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's a bit like um, uh, sensitivity readers or whatever you yeah. want to, you, you know. Uh, I, I know some people don't like the term sensitivity reader because it says no, we're not being we're not being snowflakes. We're just saying if you're writing about something that's out of your experience, do a bit of research. Mm. That's I'm uh, the fourth Woodville book has a character that has what we call PTSD, what they would have called shell shock in the Second World War. So I'm liaising with a, a wonderful chap who served in the army and has worked with the Royal British Legion on PTSD, and he knows the history as well. If I just waded in there and wrote what I thought was was 
you know, based on what I've read in books and films and everything, I know I'm going to get that wrong. Mm. I know. So I'm talking to someone who, and of course, the first question I said to him was, what do books and films get wrong about PTSD? And he was like, oh, great. Yeah, they get this wrong. That's a great question. Yeah, Yeah, that's a really good leading question, isn't it? Because that's the thing you want to avoid. Exactly. It's a bit like when we talked about, we asked the same question about when we were writing Comas, writing about comas, yeah, yeah, yeah. about reality, yeah. And then yeah, writing and about, you know, what what do male readers or writers always yes. get wrong about females <laughs> in their book? Exactly. Do you yeah, remember yeah, that yeah, conversation yeah. we had? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely. So I, I think, so, and, and particularly, I, I think, I don't ever mention this on the podcast before, but I, I certainly, we've talked about it in the Academy and the craft coaching sessions, in that I wrote a short story set in Australia, um, and I sent it to an Australian friend who said, look, if you're going to write about um, the indigenous peoples of Australia, you really need to know what you're talking about because it's a contentious issue. It's mm-hmm. you know you you are going to get it wrong. It's as simple as that. So if you have someone, uh, and as Lizzie said, she didn't just have the the consultant; she had historians working with her as well. You know, she got the best advice you can possibly get. And I've always said you want to be able to you know if you do a festival you want to be able to sit upright in front of a festival crowd and say this is what I did I did my due diligence I did my research uh, and this is what we discovered um so you know at least you can say I, I didn't just base it on watching a couple of old movies or reading a couple of old books you know which themselves might not have been you know that were researched either so I think yeah. it's um yeah I think it's uh Really, it's, it's something I do in almost every book now, and it's just part of the research process. And it's fascinating as well, isn't it? Because we grow as authors as we deepen our knowledge on certain things. And oh, it, yeah. it, you know, it's great to get that depth of knowledge in something that maybe we don't have, have never even delved into. But understanding the context of what you learn about is applicable to them, whatever you else you write in the future. Mm. You know, understanding, say, a character's specific point of view on something might change how you write characters in the future as well. So it's all it's all fuel for the fire, isn't it, ultimately? So that's great. Absolutely. Now, yeah. one thing that, that, that I loved that, that Lizzie said was this idea of the book. It was an idea that never left her. And we mm. talked a bit about this before where, and I, I, I actually was coaching on this, uh, ironically, in the Academy just the other day, and this idea that if you have multiple book ideas, you know, create yourself a, a car park, a parking lot where you put those ideas and keep coming back to them and see which ones stick. And, you know, obviously this is something that's been really, really stuck with with Lizzie has that kind of X factor for her. And it's proven right. You know, there was obviously mm. something behind that sense of like, I have to write this book. Now seeing what's happened to it and how well it was. So it's about listening to that intuition, isn't it? When people have those ideas that stick. And I know the same for you with the Woodville book as well, or the series, but. Yeah. There are times when you know there's a story there, but you don't quite know what it is yet. Yeah. And it's like, you've got this amorphous lump in front of you and you look at it from different angles and you're like, there's something there. I don't quite know what it is. Okay, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to go away and do something else and come back to it. And when you come back, something will have changed. Maybe you've done a bit of research. Maybe you've got a new insight to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe the world has changed a little bit. Maybe the timing is a bit more right. So when you come back to it, you go, oh, it's one of those yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can, yeah. Okay, it's right, a bit I know like how to a, do that now. It's a bit like a marination <laughs> process, isn't it? Sometimes yeah, ideas yeah. have to marinate for a bit. Um, in fact, they always say the best things to do are to kind of like like marinate an idea and let it let it just sit for a little bit and then come back to it. Because the thing is, again, we don't talk about this very often, but there is a problem to getting an idea 
and jumping on it straight away and starting yeah. to write it without actually giving yourself a point to say, hang on, do I really want to spend the next one, two, ten years of my life writing this particular story? Like, is it is it important enough to me and is it of yeah. value to me in my life? Will it be of a value enough to the world for me to spend the time? And I think the the tendency, I know this is definitely my trait, my tendency is to jump straight in when I'm excited about a project. It's like, oh, and you want to just go for it, hell for leather. But I think that there's actually a value in stopping, taking a deep breath, sleeping on it as a bare minimum, mm. sticking it in a drawer for a couple of weeks, or just working on it, but not having to necessarily say, I'm deciding to write this book. Give, give you, let the book prove to you that it's worthy of your time. It's worthy of that year of your life to spend on it. It's, it's, got a, it's a kind of a two-way relationship in some ways. We we spoke, Lizzie and I spoke about that thing. Is this my story to tell as well? Which uh, it also also comes down to: can I can I tell the story? Can I do I have a point of view on this? Do this this whole thing that I talk about? Is there a thematic argument? It, what is this story about? Because stories aren't just ideas. An idea is you know oh okay it could be X meets Y equals Bloom and that's a great idea. Let's jump into that, but. Then you just discover that's just the surface, and you've got to think, okay, what is this actually about? What can I say that's different, that's unique? Uh, and it's some of it's about you finding your voice, you know, that thing of, like I say, going, letting it marinate, going away, coming back, and you may have found your voice, and you go, oh, actually, I've got a really good, you know, take on this. I've got something that I think I can tell this story with, uh, from a truthful point of view and in a way that's going to resonate with other people. And that's, um, as you say, that can take time. Mm. I love as well that in, in Lizzie's story, she very much pinpointed this moment in her life where something bad happened. Like she, she talked about the illness that she got and how it created like a shift in her identity. And, and she, she even said mm. the words, you know, I, I lost purpose. I lost my purpose. And, and I think you know, these moments in our life, and I don't, honestly, I don't think anyone, anyone goes through life without having at least a couple of these big life-changing moments. It can be that, you know, um, maybe it's not something that happens to you directly, but it's ha something that happens to somebody close to you. But these moments are really, really important moments in your life because you can have these seismic shifts where if you're kind of like just in a rut or you're just kind of doing the normal thing that everyone tends to do that we all get into this groove in life and sometimes we need something huge to shake our ability to see things differently and it's almost like from this moment of this dark moment that lizzie experienced this incredibly good thing came out of it and that's the beauty in sometimes these kind of challenges that people experience so i really just wanted to kind of like just just encourage people who, who are out there listening to this right now who are going through really bad times right now. You know, whatever it might be for you, whether you're going through really deep depression, um, whether you've lost someone, whether you've just found out you've got a serious illness, whatever it might be for you, um, hang on because there's always some kind of equal and opposite. At least that's been my experience in life. There's always something equal and opposite. And if we're willing to see that and if we're willing to grasp it when it comes, um, and run with it, then we often then look back at the really challenging moments in our life and think, ah, I see that there was something that I could learn from this, or there was something of value that could come out of it. 
Um, but when you're at the depths of your despair, I think that's a very hard, it's very hard perspective to, to, to get, but just to yeah. give people hope because I know, I mean, you know, we've all, we've all had experiences in life. I'm sure you've had, you've had a few as well, Mark. I think with COVID, we talked about this before about the global impact that how it made people actually really reassess what they're doing with their lives and what's important with their life. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a lot of good things that are going to come as a result of that, which I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the shift. I just hope as humanity, we learn from our mistakes. <laughs> we learn from the things and we're talking at a time, which is without wanting us to go there. It's like, you know, yeah. I'm woken up to some bad you know, global news this morning. And I just think, wow, you know, um, it's time for us to, to really learn from this, from all the things we've mm. experienced. And we learn through our stories that we tell, we learn through the stories that we're writing. And that, that's what Lizzie's been doing really with, with the focus that she's had. But um, yeah, that really hit me. It really hit me. Mm. No, I can imagine. I can imagine. And I, I, you know, I can't, I've, I've led such a, a really cushy life so far, just waiting for the hammer to fall at some point. Um, I mean, I, I was at a family funeral a couple of weeks ago and um, that was, it was, I don't know. Yeah. You see those big turning points in people's and you come back from it and you think, yeah, can't muck about. I was, I turned 49 this week. You know, I know. Birth- happy birthday. <laughs> 49. 49. How the f- what? Yeah, I feel I know. 25, you yeah. know, I feel like, uh, uh, as you can tell by the toys on my shelf, <laughs> state of arrest and development. Start to grow. <laughs> it is, though, yeah. it's a weird, well, the, the, I mean, these are these are the seismic moments I'm talking about. It's like, like, there's moments where you just go, how the hell did that happen? Like, what happened <laughs> to the last 20 years of my life? And um, and then you start having these really kind of like, you know, serious conversations with people in the 20s. Like, okay, you know, you've got to make the most of it. You're kind of like, you know, desperately telling them not to waste their years. But um, yeah. I think it's... Uh, you've got, um, you got to watch Tick, Tick, Boom. Okay, this is the musical that's on Netflix with Andrew Garfield. And it's, it's yeah. terrific. It's really, really good. And it's about the guy who wrote the musical Rent, and he, he died tragically young. He was like 33 or 34, something like that. Um, and the, the Tick, Tick, Boom is about the musical he wrote before that, which was uh, ultimately was staged, but not in his lifetime, I don't think. And he spent eight years writing this kind of science fiction musical, and it was his obsession, and it cost him relationships and friendships, and he was determined to make this thing, this science fiction musical. And he he got to do um, a kind of, uh, what would you call that? I forget what he calls it, but it's, it's not a performance, but he got some singers in a room and a piano and they were singing his songs. And, um, you know, Stephen Sondheim was there and all these financiers were there. And, you know, it was a culmination of eight years' work. Uh, it's a slight spoiler for the film, but it's, it's all there. It's just all, you know, this actually happened. And, you know, everyone loved it. And Sondheim loved it. And then he goes home and he's waiting for the phone to ring, waiting for his agent to call. And his agent said, yeah, they all loved it. They all thought it was great. Um, They all said, what have you got next? (laughs) And I I watched that and I nearly burst into tears because I thought, yeah, I've been there. I think every writer who's listened to this, who's had some kind of contact with an agent or a publisher who's had a rejection where they've said, yeah, we love it. But, you know, not for us, but. Get in touch with your next thing. Get in touch thing. with the next thing. Yeah, we're really but, but interested. I've been, I've been writing this for eight years, and it's goodness. And, and, can you imagine? And the, and the kind of the epilogue to his story 
is that he he did he wrote Rent like that, wow. you know, and Rent is an astonishing mega success, mm. yeah, global success. Sadly, he died the night of um, of the first run through. I think oh, he never got to see really? it. With an, it's oh, it's heartbreaking. Mate. Oh, it's no. so heartbreaking. So, um, but you know, his legacy is this astonishing yeah. play, which is you yeah. know musical, which is just you know blockbuster. But yeah, folks. Get right. Absolutely. Time. <laughs> well, let, let's talk a little bit about the daring to dream. You know, mm. um, I, I love that Lizzie had the courage. Um, some people might say, you know, the, the audacity to, mm. to write this list and to write at the top of her list, her dream agent. And yet, his absolute proof, and Mark, you know, I mean, I've been banging on about this <laughs> as long as I was in, in like shorts at school. But you've got to dare to dream. You've got to allow yourself to put down that publisher, the dream publisher you'd like to to publish a book, the dream director you'd love to make your book into a movie, that dream agent that might have that incredible network of people to take your book onto the stage that it deserves. And here is proof. She wrote the name you know, Madeline Milburn at the top of her list. And she said that within a week, she had signed the deal with her. And then, and then you see then what happens. Like the, obviously Madeline's got incredible, you know, uh, you know, she's good at what she does, obviously, because she's got all of these incredible people that have signed a book, but it just goes to show. To be fair, to be, to put my cynical hat back on again. Go on. Right. Right. Because she, She's a journalist, and she did say that agents and editors had been in touch saying, do you want to write a book? So the door is a little bit ajar there in a way that it's not for a lot of other people. And and journalists True. do do get this a lot. They, I know that agents and editors follow journalists and say, and, and look, if you're listening thinking, well, I'm not a journalist, why? If, if, I would suggest if you've if you've got an expertise or a passion for a particular thing, and in Lizzie's case, it's, it's travel um, and history to a certain extent as well. Start blogging about it. You know, mm. put yourself, pitch yourself for magazine articles, pitch yourself for for stuff like that. Because again, it's, you know, it's a long road, but you never know where it might take you. Yeah. You know, if yeah. if you have an expertise on a particular subject, then why the hell not go for it? If you're, you know. If you're writing in a particular genre or a particular about a particular subject, then then go for it because you never know when someone you never know. might go. Well, yeah, that's it. Uh, and once you once you've got that article out there, I mean, it's yeah. funny because going back about twenty years now, when I first started in the internet in the mid nineties, um, I'd been at, at university. I'd been the arts and music editor of the newspaper, and I got into it. I almost did journalism. I went to the Cardiff University course and you know was thinking of applying for that post uni and so I was I was really seriously thinking of going down that route and it really opened my eyes but you know completely out of the blue I just thought oh I'll pitch an idea of a of an article to one of those high street tech tech magazines about the internet and I'd never actually I'd published a few like published a few kind of reviews of cinema um you know film film reviews music reviews and then start covering a few kind of university kind of front page stuff that was happening but i'd never written an article for a magazine and i just literally wrote a letter to the editor of of um i can't remember what it was called now computer active or one of those but it was a big (laughs) high street magazine at the time and and i said look i've got this great idea about you know the internet i'd love to write an article and they literally emailed me back within a day and said yeah great and we agreed on a fee. And I was yeah. like, bloody hell. And then the weirdest, the weirdest thing that happened, Mark, was that 
I then sent this like, he said, right, I want 750 words. I was like, that's all right. I'll bash that out in a day and um, <laughs> sent it off. And the next thing I heard about it was when the magazine came out. And on the front page of the magazine, it was a like the whole cover had been designed around this article I'd written. And I had no nice. idea. It was like the cover, it was the cover feature. And, and like it had gone from absolutely never having been published in a magazine to getting the cover. And of course, at that point, you start thinking, well, hang on a minute. Now I've got this. Like I can pitch that, add that to your resume. So I don't think it takes a huge amount. You just have to have the audacity to, to, to pitch yeah, something I mean, and I've, see what I've happens. Di- I've dipped a toe in a car. I, I, I did work experience at the Leatherhead and Dorking Advertiser. Advertiser. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Now, this I is... wanted... This is so annoying because everyone else who wanted to do journalism at school when we were doing work experience was were girls, and they all got to go to glossy magazines. I wanted to go to 2000 AD comic, but they wouldn't let me, so they sent me to the bloody Leatherhead <laughs> and Dorking Advertiser, advertiser yeah, oh, where I sat in a room. Sorry, we'll know all about this. Everyone was smoking, uh, and I had oh. the little kind of. I, I was writing up. I was writing up some of the funeral stuff. You know, people who died. You know, obituaries, oh. funeral stuff. Um, I was writing obituaries and things like that. I went with a journalist to court. But I discovered journalism probably wasn't for me. I just don't have that. You've got to, you know, you do one article and you think, oh, but you've got, if you want to earn a living, you've got to do two, three of those a week. Yeah. You know, but it, like I said, if you have a specific interest, like for example, um, Film Review Magazine, which is run by Simon Brew, who's the nicest man in film. Uh, film Review, they're always looking for articles, you know, so if you, yeah. and I've done, I've done one for them on um, DVD, how I learned all about film through DVD extras, you know, so I did an article on that and he pays, nice. you know, he yeah. pays good money. Well, it's, it's, but it's also like, it's, it, I mean, magazines is where it was at when we were, when we were kind of growing up in our twenties, but nowadays you can pitch to a blog, be a guest, a guest blogger on some, somebody else's blog that's got like, you know, 20,000 or a million readers. There's so many opportunities and it's all writing and it's all a great opportunity. I want to tell you one day the story why I didn't get into journalism. <laughs> which I'll save for another day because it's a long one, but it's really fascinating. But um, one of the guys that was in my five-a-side soccer team, football team at uni, uh, Darren Bignall, big up to my friend Darren, he inspired me because he was the guy that was writing film reviews for his local newspaper, like the Leather Advertiser type thing in Kent, I think was where he was actually probably, it might even be your local Mark. I can't remember, but I think he was from Kent. And he said to me, Mark, he said, you know what? He said, it's the best gig in the world. He said, you get a press pass and on Sunday, not people don't know this, but on Sunday mornings at the cinema, you get to go and view the film like a week or two before it actually comes out. And I was like, really? So I rang up our local cinema, Swansea, Swansea cinema, Odeon, whatever. And I said, "Uh, I'm the uh, arts editor of Bad Press. Bad Press was the name (laughs) of our student newspaper. What the worst name in the world for Bad Press uh, arts editor. I said, "Um, and, uh, you know, I've got lots of uh, students interested in, in, you know, reviewing films and we got a big we had about 30 40,000 circulation so it was like a big chunk of the, the city and he gave me a, a, a press pass to any movie not just the Sunday morning you know come and watch Schindler's List you know before anyone's seen it but at any point any point during the week I could pop along show this pass and go and watch any movie I wanted and I had a wow. plus one and I'll tell you what I, I will admit to this my first ever date with Jen, which is where I met I met Jen <laughs> in Swansea, was I took her to see Speed with Keanu Reeves. And I felt like such a cheapskate because I flashed this ticket 
didn't have to pay a thing. And uh, yeah, Brilliant. well, I but, yeah. um, I did. I used to do. I did a couple of reviews for the Epsom Guardian. Uh, one of which was um, a preview for Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was. Uh, uh, entertaining, but Mark Kermode was in the row behind me, laughing his head off. I, I know, um, but they 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 expected you to do them for free, uh, which I wasn't going to do. Mm. But that is that is one of those things. If you do that, if you do reviews for the local newspaper or whatever, you can build up a portfolio, <clears throat> and then you can start, you know, going down that road. But um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of free writing. I wasn't having any of that. <laughs> Which is kind of ironic because it's what we all do as authors. Yeah, <laughs> really, yeah. like, for for months and years before we actually get a deal, it's all free writing. But but it is it's it's actually we should maybe um we should maybe kind of delve into this more in another episode because I think it's a very interesting angle that we've not discussed before. But um yeah, I mean, and you're right. I mean, going back to what we we're talking about with Lizzie, she did have a head start. You know, she was a known writer, but. I still stand by the fact that she could have decided to not put that yeah. that agent yeah, yeah. at top and just played it safe and gone for all the ones that she thought she might have had a chance with. So I encourage everyone out there, you've got to do, and I did this in my career as well, you've got to write your dream list. You've got to do it. And you've got to write that scary email or make that scary phone call yeah. because you just never no, and in my experience, when I've made the scariest of phone calls, they're the ones that have changed my life or my career. So I really believe in that. And I and I salute Lizzie for doing it, not only for having the courage to do it, but also doing it and then showing us all what happens, you know, when you when you decide to go for it, because you know, she deserves every success she got because she went for it. So awesome, awesome stuff. Absolutely. Now, before we shift to social media, we just got to talk about the um incredible email that we did get from Lizzie. And <laughs> the thing that I love about this is there was one one part of the email where she talked about, and she alluded to this during, you know, the, the challenges she had during COVID where she would, they were staying uh, with family in the attic. I think it sounds like the reverse Harry Potter story almost. But, um, <laughs> but um, I think it's incredible, um, you know, that she she wrote really, she wrote to us to say thank you didn't she? She said, you know, thank you for being the community that I was, um, I was too scared to go out and find in person. And because a lot of the, the book happened during lockdown, she said the podcast kept her going, which yeah. is phenomenal. So, well, the, the first line of the letter, after lots of umming and ahhing and working up the nerve to get in touch, I'd love to share some good news. The umming and ahhing. This is exactly what you're talking about. We love emails like this. Yeah. This is this is catnip. You know, this totally. <laughs> we love. We really dig these emails. So, if you've had some good news and you're listening to the podcast and you heard something, you know, I mean, she says I'm a long term listener. Started listening before the Aronovich mauling. That's a new uh, adjective for that. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, do not. You know, if you've got the slightest bit of good news, drop us a line. We blooming love these. Absolutely well, love these. Absolutely, there should be absolutely no umming and ahhing whatsoever. <laughs> and um, but also, we want to thank Lizzie as well because she became a patron of the podcast. Uh, you know, as soon as she emailed us, like looking at looking it up and thinking, oh wow, Lizzie's been a, she's been a patron podcast for quite a few years. Um, and so we just want to encourage everyone out there who's thinking of becoming, he's been thinking of becoming a patron, you know, be like Lizzie, look what happened to Lizzie. Just come along and sign up and support this podcast because this, like Mark said, it's catnip for us. It's absolute catnip when we find out about the successes, but it does start with, with people, um, you know, really kind of like 
acknowledging the value of all these incredible authors that we get on the show and the things that they're learning um, and supporting the podcast. So I would, I just want to say thank you to Lizzie for being a patron and, um, and hopefully inspiring everyone out there who's been thinking about signing up for like a, a month, a year or a couple of years, who's been listening to it to do it now because, because it's time folks, it's time to support the podcast and, and keep the show on the road because, um, you know, Mark and I, I mean, we, we show up and do this. We spend our time and our love doing this. This, we do this for love. Um, but we need to cover our costs for the podcast. And that's what the patrons are doing when they, when they pay those, you know, five or $10 a month or whatever it is. Um, it's actually paying for us to be able to create this show for you guys. So I'm just going to put it down and say, come on, guys. <laughs> we are not doing this for the money. We're I not doing this. <laughs> not, we've been doing this for five and a half years. And, and, and we have an amazing group, but I will say this again, less than 1% of people who listen to this podcast support us, which I think is shocking. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> shocking. So folks, you know, come on, come on. If you love this podcast, um, look at what happens to authors that are really, really, um, you know, serious about doing this and we're here to support you. And, and thank you to Lizzie for being a patron. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Lizzie. Um, so yeah, that's uh, sorry, rant over, Mister Stay. I'll, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think Shall I do right. social media? We've got some you, good news. Well let's, well, let's talk about all the other great stuff that's happening with all people this listening, great. listening as well. Yeah, here we go. Have a listen. To well, some uh, Chandra Affinity, who is uh, part of the Bestseller Academy, um, she said, "I found out today that a piece of writing I submitted to the Oxford Flash Fiction Prize 2022 was longlisted. I cannot yet share the title as the judging process is still taking place, but the the piece I submitted." reached the top 10 of submissions. What started as a little fun and complete divergence from my usual writing may mean I get my first publication. Thank you to the Academy and all members uh, who without, I would not have known what flash, flash fiction was or that there were actual competitions. Uh, so huge congrats uh, on that, Chandra, and got everything crossed for the shortlist and maybe a win as well. Why oh, the hell not? Absolutely, Chandra. Congratulations. Amazing. Brilliant, brilliant news. And uh, Mark Hood, the legend that is Mark Hood. And I do urge everyone to check out Mark's website because when you go on there, you get, he's still got that uh, writing streak, which is at 806 days. I saw. 508,919 words. This is astonishing. Uh, Yeah, he says to do check that out. But Mark Hood has, uh, eventually those words coalesce into books and he's got one of those books coming out soon. Uh, Return of the Martians, which is uh, a sequel to War of the... I should do that in my Richard Burton voice, you know. The Return of the Martians, a sequel to The War of the Worlds by Mark Hood. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Uh, Which is coming on March the 1st, so it's probably out by the time you hear this. Also... um, He's got a uh, a lead mag- a reader magnet called Amy's Story, which is about a woman who a woman's point of view on the Martian invasion. And you'll like this, Mister D. There's a very crucial bit set in Leatherhead in Surrey, which uh, features in the original War of the Worlds book. Of course, Leatherhead it does, a, doesn't it? Leatherhead gets a couple of mentions. Yeah. there's a whole there's a whole section in Leatherhead. I know. Um, yeah, we should and, we should uh, probably put this in context for all our listeners who are tuning in for the first time. Thinking what Leatherhead? Because you've got to remember the word Leatherhead. <laughs> Sounds like some character in a horror movie, right? I mean, really. Or either, what either they used or... to call American football players because they wore leather helmets. There oh. was a George Clooney film called Leatherheads. We got all excited, thinking George Clooney was going to come it's and film to... it. Oh no, it's about American football. Well, we'll be we're, we're happy with Michael Caine, though, aren't we? 
happy with Michael. Yeah. He lives yeah. in Leatherhead, doesn't he? Yeah, we like. My mum just... served him in Sainsbury's. Yeah, that one. Well, my mum keeps bloody pass... cheese. My mum, <laughs> my mum keeps passing him in the in the high street. But yeah, we should context this that Mark and I grew up in Surrey, um, and we went to school in Leatherhead. Well, Ashdale Leatherhead. I, I, it's kind of on the board, wasn't it? But you were um, more Ashdale, weren't you? St Peter's. Name, well, no, it was the St Peter's. Was, I think it was Leatherhead. I think, yeah, no, it's Grange Road it's Leatherhead. But Mark and I yes. went to rival schools, which is hilarious. Um, but Leatherhead <laughs> is the name of a town. Look it up; it's brilliant. Uh, a name of a town in Surrey, in England, where Mark and I grew up, which is why we talk about the Leatherhead Advertiser. But recently, <laughs> a bit of fun. Um, a sushi restaurant opened in Leatherhead High Street and it made like national news. <laughs> I shouldn't be promoting it really, but um, for the wrong reasons. Um, but something, yeah, so Leatherhead's just one of those places, it's a bit like Twilight Zone, isn't it? It just seems like it's a town unto itself. It really is. It, it really is. is. A, a, a very posh restaurant opened there recently as well where the old do you remember where martin's was yes martin's that's what i was talking about the uh, yeah. yeah yeah yes beluga. yes yeah with the, with the yeah that's it beluga yeah with the dress code oh dearie me oh dearie, national dearie news me. it made because it was very inappropriate <laughs> but um whenever i come back home i you know i always like to to pop in and walk around the swan center and oh, yes. for anyone who's ever been to leatherhead and we're, 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 we're very specific but everyone knows about this in their own town the worst the worst car park in the world <laughs> that is absolutely impossible without well, scraping a car to get into well, I moved to Leatherhead when I was eight I, I grew up in London I moved to Leatherhead when I was eight and the Swan Centre had just opened and yeah. the car park was front page news and I remember <laughs> what they did was this is so patronising they got to prove that the car park was fine they got a woman right a woman driver to drive a Rolls Royce and park it and oh, as if to say, look, it's me. fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was like eight years old, and I thought, even then, I thought that's really patronising. <laughs> it's it's fine, apart from all of the artwork that cars have created on the corners of every concrete post. I mean, literally, go go to Leatherhead and drive around. Like, it's just the most ridiculous car park in the they've, world. They've, They've made the spaces wider now. Have they? That was, okay. that was, the, that was yeah, yeah. But it's, it's uh, not what it's we have here, Mark. We actually have. There's a car park. I won't mention the store because we we don't want to we don't want to promote all these stores on our website. But I, honestly, there's a genius genius company out there that have created a car park where they have a parking space, and then they actually have like a a, a buffer. Like it's like it's it's the two white lines, and then another kind of thin white line looks a bit like a kind of almost like a bike lane, but right. that's for where you open your door and where Very you nice. don't dent the Rolls Royce or the Tesla next to you. And it and I love going to this store just because I can park and open the doors and don't have to say to the kids, "Watch the car, don't open the oh. <laughs> right donk." Yeah, <laughs> no on the windscreen. Um, but yeah, so so that sorry, folks. We just we should we should do a part of history of Leatherhead. We should just drop a few things in because it's a so, very bizarre place. So if you want to read about Martians invading Leatherhead, uh, do I'll put a link in the show notes to Mark Hood's new book, The Return of the Martians, 
uh, this, I've started reading the short story. It's it's terrific stuff. Re- really in keeping with the H.G. Wells tone, uh, and I love it. I absolutely love it. But moving on from that, last bit of social media news, which is great. Uh, Kimberly B on the Academy, uh, and she says uh, she says it. I'm almost two months into surpassing my word count goals. Woohoo! Credit to Mark D, that's you, for the super helpful December coaching session on goal setting and also to Liz, who's a member of the Academy, for first suggesting the word count math challenge as oh, yeah. it lit a fire for some self-completion. 200 words per day in January, 300 words per day in February, etc., until you reach 1,300 a day in December, and Kimberly says, I've written over 17,000 words since January 1st, over 2,000 more than I predicted for this month, and I still have a week left. Uh, so I started small, but now my norm is going to write more than the daily minimum, and I find it much easier to keep the story momentum going. I've also had more fun writing than ever before, which is another one of my goals. So this is what the Academy does, guys. This is what This is what it's all about. It's absolutely brilliant. And if you want to know what the word count math challenge is all about, it's super cool. You have to come and join the Academy because we're going to talk about it on the show. Um, That's absolutely brilliant. I just had a thought, Mark. Wouldn't it be funny if in the next week or two, the bestseller experiment appears in the Leatherhead Advertiser? Oh, okay. oh, we should do that. Could you imagine? Is this, is no, it's no, still like, going. Is it yeah, still yeah, going? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's still going. It's still going. Okay, so if anyone... No, we're not gonna, We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. If anyone listens to this show and lives in around where we grew up, send them a copy of it and tell them about our rant about the Swan Centre car park and, and see if we can get an article in Mark and I's local rag. I think that'd be absolutely... I shouldn't say local rag. That's quite derogatory. Local newspaper. And I must say, I've got to, I've got to say, in, in, in response to all this, though, I have a long-standing affinity with Leathered Advertiser because on a number of occasions growing up, they would put articles of, uh, you know, sports events and athletics and I got quite a few photos of me jumping into a sandpit which is what I did for a living back when I was a teenager uh, in the leather advertiser and they supported that I love local papers for how they support children and sports and you know to get your photo and name in the newspaper when you're like 12 years of age or something can really be a massive fuel to the fire of dreaming big so yeah mine was I love mine was sports but i was i was usually dressing up for some theatrical thing or other it, yeah uh, so, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah front page like the yeah. third field production or something brilliant so we love local newspapers we, we we did a video that got into a national competition and the teacher at school, Mr. Bell, who'd helped us with the competition, they quoted him as saying that he was as pleased as punch. He said, I've never used that phrase in my life. So I learned very uh, soon that newspapers will misquote you as well. So yeah, let's, uh, let's get in the local get in the local. All paper. right, folks. Yeah. yeah, whoever's out there listening, send them send them the article and say, look, you get a mention in this 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 week's uh, bestseller experiment. Brilliant stuff. Excellent. Oh, I love this. This is good fun. Um, brilliant stuff. Well, listen, Um, Folks, if you have been inspired by today's episode, um, please make this a productive writing week. Get on with that book that you're writing. Break through those barriers. Push away those doubts and write that dream list. Put on the top of your list. Who do you want to publish your novel? Um, Or how many sales do you want to make from the first self-published novel that you might be putting out or your current published novel? You know, make some crazy goals. Dream big because you know what? Lizzie is proof that it happens. And I, for one, I really hope, um, I really hope for Lizzie that we're going to look back at this episode in, say, two, three, five, ten years from now and go, 
Do you remember when we interviewed Lizzie Pook when she put her yeah. first book out? I've got a feeling. She won't speak to us now. She won't. Well, that's right. We, um, that's why we have to get people early. But I do, I get this weird, talking of spidey senses, I get weird spidey senses and I've got one right now. Um, and I just think that, you know, what Moonlight and the Pearler's Daughter even sounds like a classic book, mm, doesn't it? It just sounds like it should be flying off the shelf. So I want to wish Lizzie all the best. And thank you so much for reaching out to us, Lizzie, and for, you know, being a, for us to help be a part of your journey and all the great authors that have kind of given you inspiring advice over the years as well. We're absolutely grateful that you reached out. And um, who's next, Mark? That's what I want to know. Who's next? Who's going to email this this week? Going to be good stuff, good stuff. Uh, folks, subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast, a depository of choice. Give us a rating. Uh, thank you, as always, to our editors, Dave and JD. And if you want to find us on social media, Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Don't um and ah about good news. Tell us your good news. We absolutely. love hearing it. And three more actions for you folks. Action number one, become a patron. Sign up at bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash patron. Action number two, if you haven't joined up the 200 word challenge, do it today, 200wordchallenge.com. It will absolutely change your year of writing. And action number three is if you love the sound of the academy, come and join us. Me and Mark are there. We coach every month. Uh, tons of courses. We've got about 30 courses now. Um, and it really is making a difference in people's lives as they gain accountability towards their writing, which is the thing that we're all lacking all lacking in this crazy world of writing so thank you so much mr stay good luck have a brilliant week this week may it may it be fruitful and have many good surprises coming your way and i look forward to chatting to you next week so it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye, goodbye.